Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. In Luke 5, we witness the conception, the conception of three disciples. In medical terms, a zygote. Uh, I love that word. A zygote is the initial stage of fetal development. So immediately upon conception, the zygote contains all the genetic information that that little person, that tiny person will ever have. All that is necessary, necessary for them to grow and develop is there from the very beginning in the DNA. And likewise, here on the tranquil shores of the Sea of Galilee, three disciples are conceived, and here we have something like the zygote of discipleship. And that we observe right away the basic building blocks for following Jesus. Luke 5 gives us a no-nonsense definition of discipleship in verse 11. Discipleship is this. They left everything to follow Jesus. That's discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus above anyone or anything. But why? Why? Why did they do this? Why would you do this? Why would I do this? Of all the people or things you could give your life to, why Jesus? So let's see if we can answer these questions and more as we go through this seaside scene and look for the DNA of discipleship. And the first thing I want to notice is that discipleship always begins with the gracious initiative of Jesus. It's easy to read verse 11. The disciples left everything and hear a pastor say, that's what you have to do, and then assume that the way to get there is just work hard and be radical and try harder. Sure, I mean, why not? You know, I mean, if you want a good grade... Students, you know this, you have, to hurt. you have to earn it, you have to work at it. You want a promotion at work, you better have a good quarterly review, a good annual review, you have to perform well, you earn the promotion. It's, so it's all too natural to import that onto our religious imaginations, isn't it? This is precisely what most world religions do. If you want to climb the ladder of heaven, if you want to get promoted from earth to heaven, here's the way. You've got to meditate this amount of time. In this way, you have to behave, definitely. You have to memorize the text, probably. Live virtuously, fast on certain days. Observe holy days of obligation. If you do all of this enough, you really work at it, you can reach God. You can climb the ladder. Or you can reach heaven or nirvana or, or find the divine spark within or, or whatever it is. It's, it's rubbish. It's not the gospel. Now, hasn't that been tried by many of us and found wanting? Rather, notice how Jesus, having already taken the initiative to enter Mary's womb, not because anybody earned it, now takes the initiative to come into Simon's boat. Simon Peter, uh, yeah, Simon Peter, James, and John, they finished fishing after a long night, and Jesus, whose reputation now precedes him, desires to speak from a boat, because if he does, his voice will carry over the water to the audience on the shore, and everyone can hear him. And so he does that, and he's preaching the word of God, we read in verse 1. Now, naturally, being a great teacher and miracle worker, Jesus went about interviewing the fishermen first, right? Discerning their theological prowess and discerning their integrity of character and the skill, perhaps, of their fishing, definitely the quality of their boat. Only the finest boat would do. He would not want to associate himself with the wrong sort, after all, would he? I mean, after all, he had a reputation to maintain. Not good for business. No, look what happens in verse 3. He simply gets into Simon's boat. Simon didn't ask it. Simon didn't qualify for it, just did it. No interview, no credentials checked. He didn't ask him which seminary he went to or about his reputation at all. He just 
got in. Now, discipleship begins this way. It's conceived in us when Jesus gets in the boat. But he doesn't even ask all the time, does he? He just invades and interrupts Simon's life quite unexpectedly. That's how discipleship begins. It's the invasion of the gracious presence of God in the lives of those like us who are unqualified. So quite unlike the religious ladders offered elsewhere, Jesus knows that your willpower, your effort, your your skill, you don't have enough to earn it. And if you try to do that, you will eventually crash and burn. You cannot climb to heaven, so he climbed down and got into your boats. It always begins with his grace, always. I love uh, Eugene Peterson's message translation, how he translates Matthew 11, verse 18 through 20. And he captures this idea that the invitation of Jesus is to those who, like Simon, are unqualified. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Work with me and walk with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Discipleship is not earning anything. It's hearing this gracious invitation of Jesus and responding. Now, the difference between earning and responding is really critical. I mean, you can do religious things in a futile attempt to measure up and be good enough. Or you can do sincere things, responding to Jesus in the unforced rhythms of grace, which is already yours. This is why our vision at Advent is receiving and reorienting everything around life in Christ. It must start with receiving his grace. So if you're a follower of Christ, one application is we cannot look down our noses at those who don't know Christ or who are making bad choices because you know what? You didn't earn it. It's not about what you did. It was a gracious invasion of your life by God's grace. You are unqualified. And so the people around you, don't look down your noses at them. You didn't earn anything. It should humble us, right? humbles me. So there's a bit of the DNA of discipleship. It begins with this invasion of grace. What what happens next? Having commandeered uh, Simon's boat, finishing his sermon, Jesus tells Simon in verse 4, put out into deep water. And there is a sermon in itself. Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Understandably, Simon resists. What Jesus is asking Simon is totally unreasonable. I mean, the best fishing all experienced fishermen knew was in the shallows during the cool of night. The fish were accessible. They were near the surface because it was nice and cool. So that's when you fish. That's where Simon had been trying to fish all night. But here's a Bible teacher who knows nothing about fishing telling an expert fisherman to put out into the deep in the middle of the day. The opposite of what makes sense. Can you imagine? Master, Simon says in verse 5, we've toiled all night and taken nothing. I mean, his eyelids would have been heavy with exhaustion. Some of you who have worked all-night shifts know this. He glances over at his nets. He's just finished cleaning them. They're ready to be used again tomorrow night. Not right now. He just wants to go home and take a nap. And so a fork, you know, in the road kind of emerges, I think, in Simon's soul. Will Will I trust myself and my experience and my expertise and my desires, or will I trust Jesus' words? And that, I think, is the essential conflict of this passage. The one I think I certainly can relate, relate to. I mean, I think you can. When you're exhausted by a long night of the soul, maybe. When you're feeling like your work is fruitless, the fish are not biting, and you are just tired and you want to go to sleep. And then the words of God come to you and they ask you to believe something or, or do something that you don't even understand and it's difficult to accept. Will you trust his word 
or will you trust your own instincts? Simon decides to trust Jesus' words over and above his own expertise. It's as if just the DNA of Jesus' presence now already in his life has already begun to, like, to, to weave together a disciple's heart in him. And it beats to the rhythm of God's gracious words. Listen, if an ultrasound were to pick up on spiritual realities, the heart of a disciple would beat to the words that Simon says to Jesus in verse 5. Despite his confusion, despite the, the counterintuitive nature of them, but at your word, but at your word, I will let down the nets. How easy it would have been for Simon to just double down on his expertise, his preferences, his desires, and tell Jesus to take a hike because he needed to take a nap. But he doesn't. He gives us the second bit of DNA of discipleship, the very heartbeat of following Jesus. At your word, I will let down the nets. I will submit to you and obey your word no matter how hard, no matter how silly, how unbelievable it seems. There's a great scene in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy in, uh, in Paralandria, if you've read it, where the, the devil figure is in the garden tempting the Eve figure. So it's like Eve before the fall. And C.S. Lewis narrates the main character, Ransom, is observing this exchange between the devil and, and Eve. And he's starting to pick up on the tactic that the devil is, is using. And so Ransom observes, quote, the idea that God might not really wish to be obeyed to the letter, to the letter, that was the sluice through which the whole flood of suggestion and temptation had been admitted to her mind. See, to be morally autonomous is, is the Edenic temptation. It, it's to fancy oneself God. You know, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Does he really have your best interests in mind, whispers the devil? Because as soon as his word is subject to your whims, you've become God. And God's word has become, at best, one of your advisors. So belief that God's word is wisdom that is higher than your own wisdom, that's part of the DNA of discipleship. When the unfallen Eve realizes the devil's trying to cut her off from the words of life, she parries the devil's temptation. She says, to walk out of God's will is to walk into nowhere. That's the conviction of a disciple is, I don't even always understand it. I don't even always get it, but I trust that to walk out of his will, the will of his words, that's to walk into nowhere. So something about the presence of Jesus compelled Simon to trust Jesus' words and to let down the net. And maybe that's an invitation for you. You might be holding something tightly, something, something familiar, something comfortable, something known, something reasonable, but you feel the Holy Spirit of Jesus is present and he's asking you to let go, to trust his words, that they're for your good. And, and he wants you to abandon yourself to his will. Take the risk of following him, to, to let him teach you new rhythms of grace. Or maybe this is simply a moment to take stock of, of whether or not you are following Jesus at all, or, or if you desire to follow Jesus, because if you only obey him when you agree with him, he is not your Lord, he is your advisor. Do you obey him when you don't understand, or don't agree, or, or don't want to? That's how you know he is your Lord. But still, we have the question of motivation. Like, why? Why would I want to obey him when I don't understand or agree or want to? Why would I want to make him Lord? Well, first, understand that Jesus is, is showing himself to be Lord in a very unique sense. Lord of creation, as he demonstrated power over the sea and the fish. So just recognize, this isn't the main point, but as an aside, recognize that this is a unique offer in world religions. Okay, Jesus is not lined up next to Buddha and Muhammad and Gandhi on a religious buffet. He's in an altogether separate category because none of them claimed what Jesus claimed. 
paths to God or, or divine agents or, or prophets. Okay, sure, but they did not claim to be God. So the point here is, if what Jesus is claiming is true, that he's God, then who are you to reduce him to an advisor on your, you know, to your throne? You're on the throne and he's your advisor. But that's not the thrust of the passage. Instead, there is an appeal. There's, just, there's a, I think, a gracious appeal to, to the way that the DNA of discipleship that we've said, God's presence in his words, produces the good life in us, the abundant life in us. Like DNA, it's a double helix structure. I've said that the, the, the DNA of discipleship is the gracious initiative presence of God in our life and the words of God in our life. Okay, so he reaches out in love, you respond in loyalty, you tend to his presence and to his words, and as you do that, the DNA goes to work and it begins knitting together in you two things necessary for human flourishing, grace and purpose. And ultimately, this is why I would encourage you to consider building your life around the presence and words of Jesus. It offers you the grace you ultimately desire. Do you notice how Simon's master in verse 5, he calls Jesus master, has turned into Lord by verse 8? Because Simon Peter knew the kind of power that Jesus just displayed is only the kind of power that God displays, power over nature. So he comes face to face with God and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Understand that in most of the Bible, to get near to the living God is a very unpleasant experience. Simon's experience mirrors the call of Isaiah that we, that we, uh, that we read this morning, Darla read. You have a great reading voice, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, Isaiah the prophet he has a vision of the throne room of God and the six-winged seraphim and the, the trembling temple and the foundations are shake, shaking and Isaiah is like mentally broken. He's shattered. He cries, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I heard one pastor cite um, this famous religious theologian, Rudolf Otto, had, has this study called The Idea of the Holy. It was a major influential work. And in that study, he studied religious history. And when somebody gets into the presence of the supreme deity... There's this unique thing that happens. He defines it as numinous awe, numinous awe, which he defines as a traumatic experience of being ripped apart by completely opposing and strong, passionate responses to the holy. On the one hand, you're attracted. You can't get away. On the other hand, you're frightened to death and you want to run. He goes on to say that you see this most clearly in people like very attractive people or very intelligent and successful people or very wealthy people. When you get, you kind of want to be with them and like be in their orbit and like kind of, you know, rub elbows with them, but also you kind of are repulsed because they, they, you sense your lack around them. You sense that you're not like that. And so there's this push-pull and that's what happens when in the presence of the holy, but dialed up. So this is what happens to Simon. He's in the presence of the holy, and he's shattered. He falls on his knees, depart from me, I'm sinful, and he begs Jesus to go away. So if you've never had a Simon, moment, a Simon moment like that, where you've fallen on your knees and become just aware of your own sinfulness and your own lack, then you've never encountered God, the living God. And if you're going to become a disciple, you need to start by asking God, the living God, to interrupt your life with his presence. And open your eyes to who he really is. Because when he does, you will be laid bare. You'll say, woe is me, depart from me, I, I'm a sinful man. It's like when you're driving your car, and you're driving your car into the sun, you can see how dirty your windshield is, right? But when you turn it around and drive the other direction, it looks relatively clean. It's actually very similar in the spiritual life. As you're heading towards God and towards the holy, oh, wow, I am dirty. 
I need cleansing. Oh, it's when you think you're good, that's when you're in trouble. So even as you confess your lack and your desire to come close, you, you, you feel this push-pull, don't you? Like, I want to be close, but I'm lacking. To be, I want to be fully known and fully loved, but I'm sinful. Well, at Jesus' feet, Simon plainly confesses this. I'm a sinner, and like all sinners, like us, if we come to Jesus' feet, Simon receives gracious words of comfort. He doesn't say, no, Simon, get up. There's nothing to apologize for. You're fine. No. He knows it's appropriate for Simon to be at his feet. He says to him, do not fear. I am holy. I expose your weakness and your lack. Yes, you are a sinner, and you have nothing to fear. That's the heart of Christ for you as you come to his feet. There's grace. You don't have to hide. You don't have to get cleaned up first. Come towards him and hear his words. You have nothing to fear. Don't you desire that? Second, build your life around the presence and the words of Jesus because it brings you a very significant purpose. Bring significant purpose into your life. After Simon's confession and Jesus' comforting grace, we read in verse 9, for, all, for he and all who were with him, they were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, uh, uh, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on I will make you catch men. You'll be catching men. So Jesus is telling Simon that he will do what we know as evangelism, sharing the good news about Jesus, bringing many fish into the net of God's kingdom. Many of us, I think, are uncomfortable with the word evangelism. A recent Barna study revealed that 50% of millennials and 30% of Gen Xers agreed with the statement, evangelism is wrong. I'm sympathetic to this feeling. The, the, the history of the church and evangelism is checkered, to say the least. Christians have been forced to convert with the tip of the sword, convert or be killed. Um, people, Christians today, I mean, more than ever perhaps, are aligning along ide- political ideologies and making idols out of politics or politicians piecemeal versions of the gospel, you know, with with hollow guarantees of financial blessing or a trouble-free life. That gospel is embarrassing because it's not real. When we read Jesus saying to Simon, I will make you catch men, we have to be careful not to interpret what he's saying through the lens of those destructive forms of evangelism. These all arise from a fractured understanding of the gospel. Sharing the true gospel, though, it, it is a natural overflow of our love for Jesus. Facebook, social media gurus will tell you that you like something that fits your brand. You kind of want to be associated with it. You'll comment on something that engages you, and you will share something that you love and that you think is worth sharing with people you love. Sharing is the highest form of endorsement. It's what we do when we love something. So if you're not sharing Jesus and you're not sharing the gospel, it's likely that you're just not convinced he's worth sharing. Um, and so the solution isn't just to feel guilty about it and, oh, I'm t- it's, it's actually to fall in love with Jesus. If you're ever going to share the gospel, first you must be convinced that it's truly, deeply good and worth sharing. We get a hint of that in this text. It's interesting, the Greek behind the English here, to capture, you will, you will capture men, you'll be capturing men. The Greek behind it actually means to capture alive. There are other words, but to capture alive. One scholar comments, Simon and his companions will no longer catch dead fish in order to eat them. Rather, he will catch living people, not to reduce them to servitude after the fashion of prisoners, but to give them liberty and true life. He will catch them alive. In other words, he will catch them up into life, life that really is life, 
the good life. The gospel is not an obligation to be forced on people or a political agenda or a promise of riches. The gospel is an invitation to the good life, an abundant life, a life of generative goodness and sacrifice and justice and peace. Don't you want that for those you love? But, you know, we have to be careful when we talk about this, especially with this miracle. There's a temptation to look at the miraculous catch of fish and then just say, see, like when you obey Jesus, you get immediately and lavishly blessed. But again, that's not the gospel. First of all, this was the call of Simon Peter. Um, It's in the book of Luke. Luke part 2 is the book of Acts. What do we read in Acts 2? Simon Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 fish come into the net of the kingdom. Okay, so this is part of Peter's apostolic call. There are implications for us though. That implication is not that the miraculous catch of fish is a promise to all Christians everywhere that obedience results in immediate reward. If you were given that gospel and you decided to become a Christian because that's what you heard, you got disappointed fast. When praying didn't take away your sickness or some form of hardship or loneliness or suffering lingered, you became disillusioned. But Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He, he, He was honest with us. So yeah, I think we can read a principle still into this miraculous catch, that following Jesus does sooner or later produce in us a kind of abundant life. For starters, he takes our natural gifts, like the fishermen, skilled fishermen. He takes our natural gifts and abilities and our labors, and he infuses them with his blessing and his purpose and his abundance, usually for the sake of others. So Danielle Williams was at the first service. Um, she, she really enjoys cooking. I think many of you have benefited from her cooking. It's a natural gift, a natural ability. She could have been a chef traveling the world, making her own TV show. When all, when all six of my kids, and, and Jenny and I, my wife and I, were, were home with COVID a couple months ago, she dropped off a, a net-breaking, abundant meal, absurdly abundant on our doorstep. And we feasted on it for three days. I am confident it actually multiplied in our refrigerator. <laughs> my wife called it the most healing meal she's ever received. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't, some of you will get this. I'm trying to say, Danielle Williams is the mother of Maribel and Encanto, that her food will heal you. Um, if you know, you know. You know, I've been singing it all week. Um, but what skills, of, what skills of yours might God want to infuse with his abundance for his service? I mean, what are you already good at? What are you already laboring at? How might God want to, want to use that to provide abundance in your life and in the life of others? That's, that's the DNA of discipleship, this double helix of the gracious presence and life-bringing words of Jesus, which build in us a life of grace and a life of significant purpose. We bless others through the gifts we've been given. So the invasion of Jesus' gracious presence in Simon's boat along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that was the beginning of a three-year friendship. You know, rabbis follow uh, a student and a rabbi... A ra- a student would follow their rabbi everywhere. The rabbi picks up a stone, the student picks up a stone. They would mirror their actions, live with them, sleep with them, eat with them. For three years, Simon and Peter followed Jesus. And you know what all that time in Jesus' presence and with Jesus' words produced in Simon? We know exactly what it did. If you, if you look at John chapter 21, we have this same basic scene playing out all over again three years later after Jesus' death and resurrection but with one major difference. See if you you can tell what the difference is. John 21, verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, so day breaking, it's day. They're on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. 
So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. They listened to his words. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. When Simon first meets Jesus, Jesus gives him a miraculous catch of fish. What does Simon do? He falls at his feet and says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. He begs Jesus to leave. Three years later, having known Jesus' presence, the grace of his presence, having, having watched him be crucified and died and buried and raised and hearing all that he's taught for three years, Jesus gives Simon Peter another miraculous catch of fish. What does Simon Peter do? He throws himself into the sea. He can't get to Jesus fast enough. The exact opposite of what happened the first time. That's what the grace and words of Jesus will do. They will produce in you a deep love for Jesus. And you won't be able to help but sharing him. So if Jesus invades your boat, don't, pro- don't protest. Welcome him. And perhaps for some of you, that's just the application. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time. But just say, okay, like, you're in my boat. I welcome you. I want to listen to what you have to say. I want to do it. You, you're in charge of my boat, my livelihood, my work, my heart. And then listen to his words. You know, not as your advisor, but as your Lord. Are there words he's speaking to you that are tough that you finally just need to accept? Because they will produce in and through you an abundance of life, though it might not look like what you expected. That's, that's the DNA of discipleship. You know, you will develop in, in, as a disciple in fits and starts. There will be awkward stages, as we all went through. There will be massive failures. There will be moments of restoration. But over time, through his presence and through his words, if you tend to them, you will grow. You will grow. And you will find him, you'll find yourself just flying to his feet. And you'll find him saying, don't be afraid. You'll find him ready and waiting and offering you warmth by a fire, by the fire of his friendship. And he'll say, come and have breakfast. And you will receive food from his hands. And you will know that you've been caught alive. Amen. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts to see your goodness, to experience the deep goodness of the gospel, the good news of your grace, of the way you empower and infuse our lives with abundant purpose and significance. Draw us close to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.